0: From New York, this is Democracy Now!
1: What we're witnessing is really the opening salvo in a campaign by anti-abortion activists to use the conservative capture of the courts to ban abortion, not just in red states, but nationwide.
0: The U.S. Justice Department has asked the Supreme Court to block an appeals court ruling limiting access to mifepristone. We'll look at the legal battle over the abortion pill, as well as Florida's new six-week abortion ban. Then to President Biden's trip to Ireland, marking the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement that ended three decades of fighting in Northern Ireland. Finally, in New Jersey, it's day five of the first faculty strike in Rutgers University's 257-year history. To a Cuban journalist as Washington and Havana hold talks focused on migration. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis signed a six-week abortion ban into law Thursday. The ban will take effect if Florida's current 15-week ban is upheld at the conservative-controlled state Supreme Court, where it's being challenged. The six-week ban would make exceptions for rape, incest, and human trafficking. In such cases, survivors could get an abortion up to 15 weeks into pregnancy, but only if they're able to provide official documentation such as a police report or medical records. Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, many pregnant people in the South have traveled to Florida for abortions. Democratic Minority Leader Fentress Driscoll spoke out against the six-week ban during a debate in the Florida House of Representatives Thursday.
2: This is not reasonable, reasonable because it amounts to an outright ban. Most women don't know that they are pregnant at six weeks. Let's be
0: clear about the silent part. You just don't want women to have choice. Meanwhile, in Washington state, U.S. District Judge Thomas Rice has rebuffed Wednesday's appeals court ruling that temporarily restored access to the abortion medication, mifepristone across the United States, but with restrictions. Judge Rice said the drug is to remain available restriction-free to 17 states in the District of Columbia following his ruling last Friday, ordering the FDA to not roll back access to the abortion pill. The Justice Department also said it's asking the U.S. Supreme Court for an emergency order to halt Wednesday's restrictions in Mephepristone. Protests to save abortion access are planned across the country this weekend. We'll have the latest on the state of reproductive rights in the U.S. after headlines. Calls are growing for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to be impeached after ProPublica on Thursday released more damning information about his relationship with Republican megadonor Harlan Crow. In 2014, Thomas and his family sold a house and two vacant lots in Savannah, Georgia, to Crow for about $130,000, but never disclosed the sale, which appears to be a violation of the 1978 Ethics and Government Act. This comes after ProPublica published a bombshell investigation last week telling unreported luxury trips Harlan Crow lavished on Thomas over 20 years in addition to being a major benefactor to Thomas and the GOP Crow is also an avid collector of Nazi memorabilia he has a signed copy by Hitler of Mein Kampf and Hitler's paintings Federal authorities have arrested a 21-year-old Massachusetts man over the recent leak of highly classified Pentagon intelligence documents. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the arrest Thursday.
3: Today, the Justice Department arrested Jack Douglas DeShera
0: in connection with an investigation into alleged unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. Teixeira is an enlisted airman, first class, one of the Air National Guard's lowest ranks. He worked in the Guard's 102nd Intelligence Wing. Federal authorities say he was also the leader of an online chat group that shared racist memes and information about guns on the Discord online platform Popular Among Gamers. He's due in federal court in Boston, Massachusetts, today for his arraignment, where he faces charges under the Espionage Act. A newly discovered batch of classified U.S. intelligence documents leaked online shows infighting among Russian officials over the war in Ukraine. The documents reveal Russia's Federal Security Service accused the Russian military of downplaying the number of casualties in Ukraine due to the reluctance of officials to convey bad news up the chain of command. Other newly discovered leaked documents reveal the U.S. has been closely spying on U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. U.S. intelligence officials accused him of being overly soft on Russian President Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, Germany's foreign minister has urged China to use its influence on Moscow to push for an end to the war, following similar calls from French President Macron and the European Union. In Russia, supporters of the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny say his health has rapidly deteriorated in recent days. Spokesperson Kira Yarmish says Navalny lost nearly 20 pounds in just two weeks after complaining of stomach pains.
2: We can't rule out the idea that uh, he is being poisoned um, even now, but not uh, in huge uh, dosage as before. Uh, but in small ones, so that he not—for him not to die immediately, but to suffer.
0: Navalny is one of President Vladimir Putin's most prominent critics. In 2020, he narrowly survived an apparent assassination attempt when he was poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok. Saudi Arabia has exchanged more than 800 prisoners of war with Yemen's Houthi rebels. It's the largest such prisoner exchange since 2020 and comes after Saudi Arabia and Iran recently agreed to restore ties, boosting the prospects for a negotiated settlement to the U.S.-supported Saudi-led war in Yemen, which has left over 21 million people in need of assistance. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia has reached a deal to resume consular services with Syria after the first trip by. A Syrian foreign minister to the kingdom since Syria's civil war began in 2011. The award-winning Central American independent news outlet El Faro announced Thursday it's relocating most of its operations from El Salvador to Costa Rica, as repression against free press intensifies under the government of the Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele. El Fado journalists and newsroom staff have faced physical threats, judicial persecution, and in 2021, it was revealed nearly two dozen of them were being surveilled with the Israeli NSO Group's Pegasus spyware. President Biden announced Thursday his administration plans to expand healthcare access to hundreds of thousands of immigrants brought to the U.S. as children. People with Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, would be able to enroll in Medicare if they're low-income or find coverage through the Affordable Care Act. This comes at a time where the rate of uninsured people in the country is at a record high. North Dakota's Republican Governor Doug Burgum signed a law Tuesday banning trans girls and women from participating in school sports. Similar laws now exist in 19 other states, though a new rule proposed by the Biden administration is seeking to outlaw such blanket bans, setting conservative states up for a clash with the federal government. Meanwhile in Nebraska, State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh has been filibustering an anti-trans package for seven weeks. The measure seeks to ban gender-affirming care for minors and penalize their health care providers.
1: I'm going to give you everything I can for your children, and I will continue. No matter what happens today, I will continue, and I am sorry. That there's nothing more I can do within my control. I am doing everything I can within my control, and I am sorry.
0: <laughs> Nebraska State Senator Kavanaugh has blocked every related bill from consideration in the legislature, vowing to, quote, burn this session to the ground over this bill, unquote. Nebraska's filibuster rules allow for taking bathroom breaks and sitting. And in France, Hundreds of thousands of people flooded the streets Thursday in the latest protests against President Emmanuel Macron's measure raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. The mobilizations came as France's top court is expected to rule today on the policy's constitutionality after Macron rammed it through by executive fiat. In Paris, protesters stormed the headquarters of luxury group LVMH, demanding France's wealthiest contribute more to financing the state pension.
4: They are looking for solutions to finance the pension system. There is a very simple solution. It is to take from the pockets of billionaires. We are here at the headquarters of LVMH. This is the seat of Bernard Arnault, who is the richest billionaire of all billionaires in France and in the whole world. If the Social Security funds are running out, they can come and get money here, among other places.
0: And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan.
5: Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
0: We begin today's show looking at the status of abortion access in the United States. Less than a year after the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion in Roe v. Wade, it's expected to weigh in today on a ruling set to take effect Saturday that effectively overrides the Food and Drug Administration's 20-year-old approval of the medication abortion pill, mifepristone. This comes after the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals Wednesday partially blocked last week's ruling by a Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas that banned the pill nationwide. It upheld parts of the decision that will only allow patients to access the pill through a doctor's office or clinic and not through the mail or over-the-counter. Meanwhile— in Washington state, U.S. District Judge Thomas Rice has rebuffed Wednesday's appeals court ruling, saying the drug is to remain available, restriction-free, in 17 states and the District of Columbia, following his ruling last Friday, ordering the FDA to not roll back access to methapristone as a result of a lawsuit brought by the attorneys general in those 17 states and D.C., Protests to save abortion are planned across the country this weekend, including in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis has just signed a six-week abortion ban into law that will take effect if Florida's current 15-week ban is upheld at the conservative-controlled state Supreme Court, where it's being challenged. For more, we're joined by Amy Littlefield. She's the abortion access correspondent at The Nation. Her most recent piece, a conservative Christian judge rules against medication abortion. How hard will Democrats fight back? Before we go to the nationwide battle, Amy Littlefield, although they're all connected, let's go to the latest that's just taken place in Florida, Ron Santos signing yesterday a six-week abortion ban. Talk about what this means.
1: Yes. And first, I just want to say, Amy, happy belated birthday. And I wish that we were here celebrating and not staring down the ghost of Anthony Comstock and the looming possibility of a nationwide abortion ban. Um, But you're right to start with Florida, because that is absolutely essential. If you look at the map of abortion access in this country, Florida is almost an island in the south. In the six months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, no state saw a higher rise in abortion patients traveling to the state for care than Florida. There were more than 7,000 additional abortions that happened in the state after the Dobbs decision compared to before over that six-month period. And so Florida has been a haven for abortion patients all across the South. And the fact that they now have this six-week ban is going to have a ripple effect across the entire nation, because we're going to see people pushed further and further out. We're going to see wait times extending at clinics all across the country in order to meet the need of this surge in patients. And, of course, there will be an untold number of people um, who resign themselves to unwanted pregnancies because of this.
5: And Amy, could you talk about the what happened uh, uh, on Wednesday with the three judge panel in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Texas, uh, partially upholding a, a nationwide ban on uh, Mifid that a federal judge issued there and what uh, what that order was going to look like on the ground?
1: I think that is the big question, Juan. And the reigning, uh, sentiment right now among abortion providers, among legal experts, is confusion because we don't have a script for something like this for a judge trying to revoke the government agency in charge of reviewing drugs, you know, trying to roll back decades of scientific advancements and approvals. Um, and so as best we can tell, what happened. You know, to recap, a rogue, rogue judge in Texas tried to revoke the FDA's 23-year-old approval of mifepristone last Friday. And then, in the middle of the night, um, overnight on Wednesday, two Trump appointees, who are among the most conservative judges in our country, looked at that ruling and said, OK, Even we think that Judge Matthew Kaczmarek went too far here. You can't reach back 23 years and revoke the approval of a drug like this. The statute of limitations does not allow that. But what they did do is try to roll back the clock to a time before 2016 when the FDA's regulations required people seeking medication abortion to go to a clinic in person three times to take a higher dose of the drug that causes more side effects. That capped the gestational age for medication abortion at seven weeks. Instead of ten weeks, and that required doctors rather than nurse practitioners or physician assistants to um, prescribe it. So they're trying to reinstate um, this reality. If the Fifth Circuit gets their way, that's what will happen. Now, of course. There's mitigating factors, including the fact that even during that time period when those regulations were in place, there was off-label use of mifepristone that allowed people who were through 10 weeks to get access to medication abortion. So we don't know how the FDA is going to respond to whatever ruling ends up coming from the Supreme Court. What we do know is, right now, nothing has changed, because these orders are not in effect. Medication abortion is still available in states where it was legal and unavailable in states where it's illegal, unless you're going to go to PlanCPills.org and look for ways to reach around those legal channels. And um, all eyes are on the Supreme Court, and defenders of abortion rights are in the highly unenviable position of relying on the Supreme Court and its three Trump nominees who were put on that court precisely to undermine abortion rights uh, to save abortion access in America. Um, There's another really important piece. Yeah, go ahead.
5: No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: I was just going to say there's another really important piece that you've already covered on the show, and that's the ghost of Anthony Comstock that is hanging over all of this. Um, and I'm glad you have Lauren McIver Thompson on the show. It's amazing that we need a 19th-century historian to explain the state and future of abortion rights in America. Um, but the both Judge Matthew Kaczmarek's ruling and the First Fifth Circuit ruling that came out um, overnight on Wednesday pay credence and seem to support the reinstatement of the Comstock Act to be used in the in stopping the mailing of medication abortion um, drugs and that, could be catastrophic. And if the Supreme Court supports that idea, it would be tantamount potentially to a nationwide ban on abortion, including in blue states, because it's very hard for clinics to operate if they can't use the mail.
5: And you've mentioned the, the Supreme Court. How likely is this to get there, and how quickly do you envision it uh, getting to the court?
1: Right. It could happen very fast because the Biden administration, you know, we have this situation where there's there's conflicting rulings. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has said one thing. A judge out of Washington state has said in 17 states in Washington, D.C., the FDA may not impose any new requirements. And so the FDA is facing these two conflicting rulings. And so I think what abortion rights advocates are hoping is that the Supreme Court is going to act between now and Saturday, before the Fifth Circuit ruling would take effect, in order to preserve access to mifepristone and medication abortion. That's sort of the best-case scenario. Of course, we don't know what the Supreme Court is going to say. But even if they do come in and save the day here when it comes to medication abortion, I think everyone should be paying very close attention to what they say on the 1873 Comstock Act and whether they think that it could apply to the mailing of medication, abortion, drugs, and devices.
0: Amy, on Thursday, a Democracy Now! reached Francine Cueto, the co founder of Plan C, which provides information on how people in the U.S. are accessing at home abortion pill options online.
2: If you're a person, uh, just a person who can afford to go online and purchase the pills, Go online, purchase them, put them in your medicine cabinet, and share them with friends. Tell people about it. Make sure you have access to these pills. There are many routes of access, and our Plan C uh, website will tell you how to do wherever you live, what your access to these very safe and very, up until today, legal pills. Um, If you're a clinician, continue to do what you can to provide and, 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 um, you know, do the best you can. Uh, If you're a lawyer, step up and, and fight this undemocratic attack on use of the judiciary to try to uh, literally break all sorts of conventions that are really uh, so undemocratic, it's hard to believe they're happening. If you're, if you're an activist, Get out in the streets and talk about this. Do do your bit. Everyone needs to step up. Um, I think this is a moment in time and um, we all have a role. And uh, this this will not be taken away because it's really an attack on our on our agency,
0: on our on our rights, on our human autonomy Again, that's Francine Cueto, the co-founder of Plan C, which is a play on Plan B, the morning after pill. Um, but this follows up on a, p- a quote of yours in your piece, Amy, from Amy Hagstrom Miller, founder of Whole Women's Health, saying— I don't think the courts are the only path for justice. That comes from someone who sued the state of Texas 11 times. We can't be too naive to think that the only path for justice here is going to be in the courts. So what are the other options? And we're going to end with that, Amy. We're at a point, right, where about a dozen states have outlawed abortion. Talk about the grassroots movement and what difference that can make in this country.
1: Right. I mean, the grassroots movement here is huge. And just because you're not hearing about it doesn't mean it's not happening. That can be intentional, right? Um, Aid access has seen a huge surge in people seeking advanced provision, meaning ordering medication abortion kits so that they have them on hand in case they need them or need to give them to a friend. Um, all of the different telemedicine services have seen a surge in interest and, and questions about getting medication abortion ahead of time. Um, So, people are preparing to help each other, to help their neighbors, to be ready. and those grassroots networks are huge. And sometimes they're through the legal channels like abortion funds that are paying for people's flights, are doing airlifts, are getting people to abortion clinics. And sometimes they're underground and less formalized than they have to do with, you know, bringing pills in from groups like Las Libres in Mexico or ordering them from overseas through channels like plancpills.org. Um, and providers like Amy Hagstrom Miller have been out front saying, look, whatever the court is, is going to do here, We're going to wait to hear from the Biden administration, because we take our orders from the FDA. So I've got one final thing here that can happen, which is for Democrats, right? I mean, we've seen Democratic uh, officials at the state level in states like California, Washington state, Massachusetts, New York, stockpiling medication abortion pills. For Democrats in Congress, I've got something you can do today, introduce legislation to repeal the Comstock Act. Even if it doesn't pass, put every Republican in Congress on record trying to resuscitate the ghost of a man who wanted to ban contraception and boasted of driving his targets to suicide with his anti-obscenity crusades. Bring Anthony Comstock back. Let's have a public airing about his legacy, because Republicans understand they can't ban abortion nationwide unless they're able to resuscitate this law from 1873. And that's what they're trying to do. So Democrats, you know, if they needed a plan on abortion here, I'm giving you a plan. Try this. (laughs) Repeal the Comstock Act, because that is the strategy for anti-abortion. Activists moving forward, and these lawsuits are clear evidence. And of, of
0: course, that. Amy, there are Republicans who also are pro-choice, like Congressmember Mace.
1: Right, of course, of course. And we need to hear from them and, and we need to hear, have a full airing because abortion rights are popular, right? They're popular across party lines. Referendum after referendum has shown us that the Wisconsin state Supreme Court election just showed us that, right? And so anti-abortion strategists are trying to go through these back channels using conservative courts that have been stacked with Trump appointees. Um, and the more that we we can talk about this in public. The better, Amy Littlefield, abortion access correspondent at The Nation.
0: We'll link to your piece. A conservative Christian judge rules against medication abortion. How hard will Democrats fight back? Next up, we go to Ireland as President Biden's there, marking the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement that ended more than 30 dec- three decades of fighting in Northern Ireland. Stay with us.
6: The Ari bossy said, yo Latifa, we can do this So I pawed into the a thought Then my brilliance, I caught And I agree, cause I already knew this Now you should want a flex Cause I'm in full effects Queen Latifa is 501. Wrath
0: of My Madness by Queen Latifah. This week, she became the first female rapper to be inducted into the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry for her 1989 album, All Hail the Queen. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, with Juan González. President Biden is wrapping up his trip this week to Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the U.S.-brokered peace deal known as the Good Friday Agreement that ended three decades of fighting in Northern Ireland. Earlier today, Biden visited his ancestral hometown in County Mayo. On Thursday, he addressed the Irish Parliament in Dublin.
7: This week marks a vital milestone for peace. 25 years ago, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, 25 years ago. One of my best friends in the Senate and a great, great friend to this day is George Mitchell. As he said, there were 300 days of failure, or 700 days of failure, and one day of success. But it was a success that one day, but more is to be done. Yesterday I was in Belfast to honor those who commit themselves to peace, to reiterate the enduring support of the United States for the Good Friday Agreement and Northern Ireland's democratic institutions. I think, I think... That the United Kingdom should be working closer with Ireland in this, ever, in this endeavor. Political violence must never again be allowed to take hold in this island. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> President Biden's visit comes less than two months after British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced he'd reached a deal with the European Union on post Brexit trade rules for Northern Ireland. Sunak said the deal will remove any sense of border in the Irish Sea. We go now to Derry in Northern Ireland, where we're joined by Eamon McCann, journalist, writer, activist, former member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, also took part in the march on Bloody Sunday in 1972 and helped form the Bloody Sunday Trust. He's the author of the recently republished 1974 book, War and an Irish Town. Well, given your history, Eamon, and also talking about the present this week, the visit of President Biden, can you talk about the significance of this trip? The Northern Ireland and Ireland?
3: Well, I think the, I mean, how we evaluate the significance of it depends on the political perspective uh, which we individually have. I, I think that I, I, my own view, sort of the main purpose of uh, Mr. Biden's uh, trip from the American point of view, from the point of view of the Biden administration, is that he wanted a, 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 the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement to be celebrated in the North and in America and everywhere else, as a peace deal that President Biden himself had uh, brought about or helped uh, uh, to uh, uh, to bring about. Now that hasn't worked and uh, Biden must be very disappointed that it hasn't worked because there isn't a reconstituted administration in Belfast, a power sharing administration with a nationalist and unionists serving in the same government. That has not happened. Now the, uh, a, a, the way The powers that be, sort of in Ireland and Britain and America, all sort of expected things to happen, is that we would have a deal, that the deal would have been signed just uh, within the last week. And this would have happened with great pomp and panoply, that we'd have uh, all the parties signing up with Joe Biden in the middle of them, them, and then peace at last in Northern Ireland being declared. That would have been a huge, a huge public relations coup, triumph for uh, Mr. Biden. But if, uh, what happened, of course, is that all the parties are not serving together because, under the peculiar arrangements established by the Good Friday Agreement itself, each side, Protestant uh, Unionists and Catholic Nationalists, each side has a veto over what might happen. And the Democratic Unionist Party uh, has decided to, to exercise its veto. So the whole process cannot go forward. This must be a bitter disappointment to those in America and in Ireland who were expecting. Uh, it's an unrestrained celebration. Uh, Mr. Biden must have been expecting an unrestrained celebration with himself at the center of it. It hasn't happened, and we don't think it's going to happen
5: anytime soon. And, uh, Amy, could you talk a little bit about what is, uh, uh, what is the cause of the current deadlock among the various parties? And also, how do you see uh, Brexit uh, as a threat to building peace in Northern Ireland?
3: Well, Brexit is certainly uh, a, a factor, but there's many other factors as well. And, if, uh, you know, that uh, somebody once said about the Irish problem, you know, it's a very simple problem, but uh, impossible uh, to understand. Uh, Brexit threatens to uh, erect a border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, or alternatively, a border right down the Irish Sea, Separating the whole of Ireland, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, separating uh, a, the whole of Ireland from, uh, a, 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 from the United Kingdom. Now, that's an immediate implication for the question of partition uh, in Ireland because if you have trade barriers between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, then you have threatened the integrity of the United Kingdom, no matter what way you construe it. That is Sort of a loosening or lessening sort of the bonds between Northern Ireland and the and uh, uh, the United Kingdom. It is to some extent both symbolically and a little bit in substance. It is det- detaching uh, a Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom and uh, a, a putting it into a position which is closer to that sort of, the, uh, of the Irish Republic. Now, for those who want to see a, tr- a transition to an Irish Republic, that's terrific. That's terrific. For those like the Unionist Party, the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, that's absolutely anathema. So here you have, once again, in 2023, you have the old Irish question. Come to the fore again. But Churchill once causes is after the war, the tide of the battle recedes. And when we look, what we see are the dreary steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone raising above the surface again. We are witnessing that today.
5: And what about this proposed uh, bill by the British government, the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Bill? What is it and uh, what's been the reaction by uh, various uh, uh, interest groups uh, in Ireland and in uh, Northern Ireland?
3: Well, the Troubles Bill, I... Uh, uh, It's a unique bill. We're talking about division and the Troubles were a reflection of division. But the British Troubles Bill has had the marvellous, marvellous result of uniting every party in Northern Ireland. They're from vivid green to deep dyed orange. They are all united and say they don't want this bill. And the reason why they're all united is that the bills are in effect with amnesty all those over recent years who have committed crimes in connection uh, with the troubles—that's putting it very simply—but that's what it means. And of course, Catholic nationalists in Ireland saying we are not having that because we had Bloody Sunday, we had Bloody Friday, we have had you know, a long uh, a history over this last uh, a 25 years of violence and no justice for the victims. Now, at the same time, you know, if you're uh, a Protestant Unionist in Northern Ireland, you can't say, "Wait a minute." If we implement this, everybody who every IRA atrocity, as they would see it, is now forgiven. So we have no uh, a recourse. Now that dissatisfies everybody, and that lies behind the fact that the, uh, uh, as I said uh, a couple of minutes ago, sorry, they, there is a unity against this bill. Sort of, what you want that you could say, is a shining light for Northern Ireland. Everybody working together. That's everybody working together to refuse. The Amnesty Bill, which the Conservative government in London is absolutely insisting on imposing upon people, very briefly in a sentence, the reason why the Conservatives, of course, are imposing this, is that the Conservatives do not want their own soldiers, who have been guilty of atrocities in Northern Ireland, to be held to account, to be brought before a court, to be given the same treatment as the British government would like to give to terrorists, uh, uh, as they say. So this is a... I mean, oh, what a tangled world we have woven. That's how she experimented
0: it. Well, Eamon McCann, we want to thank you so much for being with us, journalist, writer, activist in Derry, Northern Ireland. Next up, it's day five of the first faculty strike in Rutgers University's 257-year history. We'll speak with one of the professors on strike. Stay with us. (laughs) Strikers singing to the tune of Hey Baby by Bruce Channel. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We go now to New Jersey, where faculty at the state run Rutgers University have entered their fifth day of a strike. This is the first faculty strike in Rutgers' 257 year history. It's being organized by three unions that represent more than 9,000 professors, lecturers, graduate assistants and researchers at Rutgers' three campuses in New Brunswick, Newark and Camden. They're demanding increased pay and better job security, especially for poorly paid graduate workers and adjunct faculty. We're joined now by Donna Murch, an associate professor of history at Rutgers University and New Brunswick chapter president of Rutgers AUPAFT, one of the academic workers' unions on strike. Professor Murch, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you lay out um, what exactly um, is at issue here? And also, when you go to the Rutgers website, it says, it's business as usual. People should go to class. Yet this is the first strike in 257 years involving, and it involves thousands and thousands of workers. There.
4: Thank you so much, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about what's going on at Rutgers, which is very exciting. So I would say the core issues that brought the union coalition together, um, they are very connected to what happened to the university during the pandemic. So, Rutgers' response to the pandemic was to lay off 5 percent of its workforce, and when it laid them off, they lost their health insurance and their tuition benefits at a time when COVID was hitting New Jersey and New York like a storm. That necessitated that the unions come together and begin to bargain and to think of themselves as really a wall-to-wall coalition. So that history is very important. And it's brought us to this point in which three unions have gone on strike, and the core issues are, number one, the way in which upward—the central administration, upper-upper management has been growing and growing and really siphoning money off of the core needs of the university. So— What we are calling for in this moment of runaway inflation is for the Rutgers management to come to the table and really think about what the university is for—teaching, research, and service to our communities. So the core demands are, one, a living wage, equal pay for equal work for adjunct workers. So you have adjuncts who are being paid starvation wages, uh, many of whom are on Medicaid, who can't afford rent and food and all the essentials of life. And this—at the heart of the strike is, is really trying to change a university which is dependent on sweated, informal labor, where they have to apply for their contracts every six months and have to teach at multiple institutions just to cobble together the bare minimum. So, a fight to think about adjunct and adjuncts, postdocs graduate workers, EOF counselors, contingent, non-tenure-track, full-time faculty, as well as tenure stream. And I mention all those job categories because this industrial vision is about holding up the different job categories, figuring out how they come together, and they work in solidarity. Uh, In terms of Rutgers saying on its website business as usual, well, that is not true. Our estimates are that 70% of the classes are shut down, and because of the broad... Uh, wall-to-wall nature of the strike. Uh, Even construction workers on campus have walked off the job so as not to violate the picket lines. So, I think one of the things that has been also really profound is the outpouring of support and participation by the undergraduates. There have been thousands and thousands of people out in the street, and significant numbers are undergraduates, graduate workers, as well as other people from the three unions. So, I've taught at Rutgers for 20 years, and this is the biggest popular gathering that I've seen. And there were so many people on Monday after we had a rally, it was on Tuesday, that they led a march that shut down George Street, which is the main drag in New Brunswick
5: uh don i wanted to ask you this has become almost the the spring of ac- academic revolts ar- around the country we've seen strikes in in uh, the, uh, university of california we've uh, we've seen uh Uh, uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. And and right now, there are three other universities in the Chicago area that are on strike. Chicago State University, Eastern Illinois, and Governor State University, uh, and uh, with thousands of faculty there. And yet many of these universities, uh, uh, like Rutgers, are experiencing um, record... uh, uh, they'll call it profits, they call it surpluses uh, or reserves uh, over over the past few years. How do you explain this, uh, the, the universities being flush with cash, yet being telling their faculty and their employees that there's not enough money to give them uh, adequate raises?
4: Yeah, thank you so much for that, Juan. We miss you at Rutgers. It's good to be here with you. Um, That is extremely important, and I can talk about, uh, through the lens of Rutgers, how this links to this national movement. So the Rutgers administration has been crying broke, and their justification for not responding to demands is that they simply don't have the money. And our union hired a forensic accountant to go through all of the public records. Because Rutgers is a public university, it is subject to transparency requirements, and Howard Bunces— his research demonstrates very clearly that the university has the largest unrestricted reserves in its history. It's up to $886 million. And these are the rainy-day funds that are being used—that are normally used in times of, you know, uh, downturn or to meet the essential needs of its workers. The way I explain this is that it's where I started. The neoliberal university, which has been literally—the upper-level administration is metastasizing. They've doubled in size over the past 10 years, and they're constantly hiring different vice presidents of this, vice presidents of that, largely accountants and MBAs who have no experience in higher education. And I really think it is a question of distribution. It is true that, in the last 30 years, there has been a defunding of higher education from the federal government and from state government. But at Rutgers, we've been able to win really important concessions, including our lobbying, the lobbying of the union, which won back a significant portion of Rutgers' funding in 2020. But there's really no correspondence that I can see between them having large unrestricted reserves and their labor policies. I think that it grows out of an idea that they want labor to be as cheap as possible, and that it's really the people at the very top who benefit from the university. So I think that, at its core, this is a political and an economic struggle, to say, tuition, the students are largely funding the university, their needs matter, that the faculty, the graduate students, the graduate workers, the uh, many different categories of workers that come together to make the university possible, they matter. We make Rutgers.
5: And also uh, the the current president of of Rutgers, Jonathan Holloway, was a respected uh, scholar, uh, historic uh, in in history and African-American studies. He always talks about having a beloved community, but he's been threatening to go to court to get uh, to seek an injunction against the strike.
4: Yeah, thank you. This is such an important piece. Um, and I'll just say, we're going through incredibly intense negotiations right now. A lot of us have been up all night working on this, figuring out what to do. And we are we are under injunction threat. And I'll talk a little bit more later about what's going on in Trenton today and how you can help. But um, we started bargaining. Our contract was up— Uh, at the end of June 2022. And we had started bargaining in May. Many times, the university did not come to the table at all. They did not bargain in earnest. They refused to respond to our counter-proposals. I think the most shocking one of those is that the grads uh, submitted their proposal for a living wage, and they failed to respond to that for seven, eight months. We're only now beginning to have even a substantive discussion about moving grads to livable wages. So these resistance tactics have been going on all along. When it became clear that bargaining was not going well and was breaking down and that the union was mobilizing, Jonathan Holloway sent a letter to all of the different parts of our bargaining unit and through Rutgers' email and all of the undergraduates saying that public sector strikes in New Jersey are illegal and that those that participated that participate in them are subject to fines, not only of the individual union, but individual fines, and facing threat of arrest. And there was another email sent uh, several weeks later doubling down on this. And he was was sending a clear message that we will go to the courts to criminalize the strike— I want to say something about the technicalities of this, because it's extremely important. Public sector strikes are not illegal in New Jersey. If you go on strike, the police do not arrest you. The only way criminalization happens is that the employer goes to a court. They have one hearing. They ask for an injunction. Usually, it entails a cease and desist order. uh, And then they go back to the workers. And see if they're willing to cease and desist, and if not, then they go back. So, Jonathan Holloway will go back to the courts to seek penalties, and he will ask for specific penalties, and there will be a hearing. Uh, These have been granted, but they have not been granted in all cases. So, that's very important the mechanisms of the injunction, that it has to be sought by the employer, which is a clear sign that Jonathan Holloway, you know, at a time where we've seen the you know largest protest in american history around issues of criminalization is willing to criminalize a strike in a deep blue state like new jersey so this has enormous consequences for labor and that helps to explain the incredible coalition that's come together there are thousands of people there all the people that i talked about the undergraduates but also people coming from labor unions all over the country the new jersey AFL-CIO, central labor councils from all over New Jersey, because everyone is recognizing that we have a Democratic governor, and Rutgers is one of the largest employers. And the threat to break this strike is really a threat not only to all of us at Rutgers, but to New Jersey and the rest of the country at this moment when we're seeing this incredible surge in higher education organizing. And I have to give a shout-out to grad organizing all over the country. I, too, was a UC grad in the 1990s when we organized the union. And I think the graduate students have shown us what's possible.
0: Well, Donna Murch, want to thank you there. for being with us, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University and New Brunswick Chapter President of Rutgers AAUPAFT, one of the academic workers' unions now on strike. This is Democracy Now. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez, who's taught at Rutgers for the past seven years. But we end today's show looking at US policy toward Cuba as high-level U.S. and Cuban officials met Wednesday to discuss migration from Cuba. This comes after the U.S. Embassy in Havana started to process immigrant visas in January for the first time since 2017. It also comes as the Biden administration faces increasing calls to lift its designation of Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism, and also the related embargo that severely limited trade and more with Cuba for decades. For more, we're joined by Liz Oliva Fernandez, award-winning Cuban journalist with the independent media organization Belly of the Beast, based in Cuba, but on tour here in the United States for screenings and events with director Reed Lindsay. They're starting to work on a new documentary looking into the economic and political interests driving Cuba policy under President Biden. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Liz. If you can start off by talking about the significance of these negotiations that are not getting very much attention between Cuba and Washington that are happening this week here.
8: Well, first, and thank you, Amy, for having me in this program. Well, of course, right now, United States is open to talk about with Cuba about migration because you need to know that. This is not only sanctions that you are putting against a country. This is economic warfare that the United States is playing with Cuba. So right now, this is having an effect, boomerang effect in the U.S. Because a lot of people from Cuba are coming to the United States, but they are not coming from us uh, political refugees. They are coming to the United States as economic refugees because the situation in Cuba is pretty bad. So. Uh, that's something that United States government, the Biden administration, is facing right now.
5: And in terms of uh, the historic policy of the United States of allowing people to be process normal visas through uh, Cuba, uh, what has been the policy in the past?
8: Well, they have policies to... Um, visas for migrants, like family reunification, they call it. But this is not something that they are doing. They have to process, like, 20,000 immigration visas at a year, and they never did that. They never uh, back that numbers. They never fold that numbers, because the politics uh, is trying to get the people in the United States, uh, but it's not about a normal, a regular process, because when you, the, when you have this kind of um, law, like, I just meant law, they are, tra- they are giving privilege to Cuba in order to uh, come to the United States as um, refugees, uh, but they say it all the time that it's about political refugees that are coming to Cuba, and that's wrong. That's inaccurate. because. When the Most of the people who come to this country from Cuba, they are coming as economical refugees, as I already said, uh, because this is not something that is like from the last year or the 10 last year. This is something that is coming from uh, the sixty. So, uh, for example, I have been in crisis my entire life. My mom have lived in crisis in my entire life uh, the, 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 the biggest cause of this crisis is the uh, sanctions that the United States putting against Cuba is weighing against my country and um, that 's the result that 's the consequence. So maybe instead of talking about migration, uh, i'd rather that the United States and my government have conversations about. What is causing this migration? What is causing this wave, the huge wave wave in the last year with migration? The cause is the sanctions. So maybe in the future, the United States government and by the administration uh, have the will to talk about the, the real cause of these migrations.
5: And I wanted to ask you, as a journalist, you interviewed Elian Gonzalez, the. Cuban national who was at the center of an international custody battle as a child back in 1999. That's a quarter century ago. I remember going to Miami covering the protests of the uh, Cuban uh, exile community there, insisting that Elian stay uh, here uh, in the United States. Uh, but the Clinton administration returned him to to Cuba, and he is. Uh, is—became uh, a member of the Cuban Assembly. Uh, could you talk about—of uh, uh, the National Assembly? Could you talk about your interview with him?
8: Yeah, of course. I have the privilege to have this interview with Elian Gonzalez. Um, he's pretty glad to have a life in Cuba. Now he's playing, like, a, a biggest role, because he's really political active, because He recently formed part of the Cuban Assembly. So he's really open to trying to do uh, help from his seat in the uh, National Assembly in Cuba to try to get to the point to uh, the Obama normalization province, uh, normalizations uh, between Cuba and the United States, sorry. Um, He's willing to try to get a better relationship between two countries. Because he really believed that uh, there is a better future for us, a future when people from the United States can have, like, normalized relationships. Liz Oliva,
0: Fernandez, we don't have much time, but I wanted to ask you about this designation uh, by the U.S. government of Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism and the effect that that has, especially as Biden was vice president to Obama, under Obama, who normalized relations before Trump took that back.
8: Yeah, well, this— The state sponsor of terrorism list is like a death sentence for Cuba because nobody wants to do business with terrorists. So nobody, Cuba is not allowed to get credit, to to get like people coming to my country to investment because nobody wants to be related with it. Uh, a country that is called like a terrorist. And this is, for me, is really cynical and really hypocritical, uh, because Cuba is not only uh, uh, open to the terrorists. There's no only no financing terrorist attacks or acts around the world. Uh, it's also a victim of terrorist attack. For example, uh, before September 11, Cuba was suffering the biggest terrorist attacks in the Western Hemisphere, and that's really bad, because the people who perpetrated this attack uh, had been living uh, freely in the United States until his, their deaths. And Cuba doesn't have its own terrorist list, uh, sponsored state of terrorism. but. If we have this privilege that the United States has like a, you are a you are a terrorist and you are a uh if Cuba ha- had that kind of privilege, we can make like a United States the first name in that list.
0: We want to thank you so much for being with us, Liz Oliva Fernandez, award-winning Cuban journalist with Belly of the Beast, now touring the United States, a journalist in Cuba. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a digital fellow. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheik, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, of Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Taye Maria Studio, John Hamilton. I'm Amy Goodman, Juan Gonzalez.